Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Evertonians, and welcome to a special edition of the Toffee Web Podcast one focused on the history of this great club of ours and with a special emphasis on Goodison Park and its unique status among English Football League grounds. I'm Lyndon Lloyd, and for anyone listening in for the first time or new to Toffee Web, I'm the developer, chief writer, and owner of the website. And I'm delighted to be joined today by four other members of the Everton FC Heritage Society. Paul McParlin is a historian who's not only written for When Saturday Comes and The Athletic, but is the senior leader at These Football Times, and more importantly, the author of The Forgotten Champions, his book dedicated to Everton's last league title in 1986-87. Mike Royden is also a prolific author and historian, covering not only Everton, but local and wartime history in particular, and is the webmaster of EFCHeritageSociety.com. And Rob Sawyer is someone who should need no introduction to Toffee Web readers. He's the author of biographies on blue luminaries like Harry Catrick, T.G. Jones, and Roy Vernon. And he's been writing articles devoted to past Everton players and the club historical figures for the Toffee Web website for as long as I can remember. At least a decade, I would imagine. And it's an honor and a privilege to feature his work. Uh, gentlemen, first of all, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Uh, Rob suggested we do something related to the Heritage Society a while back, but this uh, strange pause in the season provides an ideal time for it, and it's really great uh, to have you on. I thought the best place for us to start would be for each of you to give the listeners a bit of uh, your a bit of your backstory, your blue credentials, your first game, and all that. Uh, Rob, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Linda, and thanks for having us all on. Um, the Heritage Society was the brainchild of um, Dr. David France, a, a person familiar to, I think, everybody on this uh, particular podcast and, and the wider Everton population. Uh, David wanted to bring together uh, sort of people with an interest in Everton's history and also sort of spreading the gospel of St. Domingo, if you will, just trying to raise awareness of, of the rich storied history that uh, this wonderful football club has. Um, some of the members are still with us all the way back from 2008. And over the years, we've been joined by many more luminaries, uh, including one or two on this uh, podcast tonight. Um, the society does all sorts of activities uh, from manning the pre-match exhibition at St. Luke's on uh, home match days to researching, writing articles, uh, doing special events, uh, social events, and also 
events to commemorate some of the great figures in our history, like uh, bravery dedications for the likes of Will Cuff and Sandy Young and uh, all manner of other things. And uh, as in recent years, probably trying to bring ourselves more into the technological age with our social media and our uh, revamped website as well. Excellent. And how, what, what, I'm sure most people know about your, your blue backstory, but do you want to, do you want to describe that? Um, well, I'm a fourth generation Evertonian. Um, my great granddad was uh, an Everton secretary and director. So it was always going to be sort of passed down the family line that uh, I followed in the same, the same way. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, my first game. I have very little memory of, I think we were playing Bolton Wanderers at Goodison. I remember being in the main stand. And I remember being quite bored, uh, but it obviously didn't put me off. <laughs> I became a regular match goer, I think, in the 83-84 season. So I'm clearly a glory hunter. And uh, for my pains, I've been going ever since. Mike, how about you? Uh, my dad was a blue, although my granddad was a red. So that must have been tough in, in his house. Uh, so, yeah, my dad started taking me. I was... My first game, about at the same time of Paul, I think I was the week after Paul. Um, my first game was Blackpool in 1962. Um, we beat them 5-0, uh, which was a great game. As, well, not that I remember a great deal about it, but it was the championship season, so what a season to start. I thought, they're, they're, this is good. I like this side. <laughs> so I kept going. Uh, but, yeah, so I, I would go along with my dad and... Um, Eventually started going on, on on my own as we all do later on, um, and that was in the seventies. Um, so I was a re regular then. Um, then my my lads go as well. They're they're both blues. Um, they're committed. So yeah, that's uh, that's that, that's when I first started go, going along anyway. And Paul, your blue backstory. <laughs> Yeah, quite similar to Mike's, to be honest. As Mike referenced there, we both started watching Everton the first season. But my first game was away at Blackburn Rovers in November 1962 in the cold, bitter winter of 62 when my dad decided to take me to watch Everton away at Blackburn Rovers. And I just, you know, the whole day just left such a mark and impressed on me from travelling on the old steam train up to Blackpool, drinking... An, an horrific cup of Oxo on the way home and the guards ran to keep me warm. And I was introduced to the Everton experience because you know, we were top of the table when we went to that game. We lost to a Brian Douglas goal in the last minute and ended up losing top place on the table. So it was a good introduction to, to life as an Everton supporter. Uh, yeah, I've been going since then. Uh, and certainly, like my unlike Rob as well, my dad was a massive fanatical blue and he, he kind of passed that down to me as well. Um, my wife and my son, uh, season ticket holders are good as a park with me as well. We sit in the upper bullion, so the blue tradition is being kept you know, with the next line of the family as well. So, like, like most blues, you know, you, know you, you the love you have for the club never leaves you, no matter how frustrating the, the, the seasons and, and performances can be from time to time. It's very true, isn't it? And it seems that I, th I think, uh, Rod, you started supporting the Blues 83, 84. Is that what you said? As a regular match car, I think I first went in 1980. Uh, my parents gave me a gentle introduction to football. You used to take me to Southport, I think, as long as like a builder upper for the disappointment <laughs> of Everton. So first went in 1980, but regular from uh, 83, 84 season. I'm feeling very old now. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I enjoyed the good times and uh, <laughs> waiting for them to come back. <laughs> but but, but uh, at, le- at least, Mike, we can say we've seen Everton win the lead title four times and there's not many can yeah, say that, is exactly, there? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but it was, the week, it was the week before, wasn't it, when you started, I think. It, you went to the away game and the following home yeah. game, I, I, I went yeah. the first time here. Yeah. So we were that close. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was your first did... game again. Sorry, Linda, I was just going to say your first game was uh, sort of 86 around then, was it? My yeah, my first my first game would have been in the autumn of 86, 87. So that season I'd started supporting the club a few months before. Um so my really my first introduction to Everton pain was seeing the the double disappear <laughs> and then and then uh, ending up in tears uh, at the the 86 FA Cup final. Um but yeah, it's uh, the, what I was thinking was that you know, so many of us have sort of started our, our Everton journeys right at the sort of the pinnacle of the club, the club's achievements. But uh, luckily for, uh, for Mike and, and, uh, and Paul, they got to see many more uh, achievements where unfortunately those of us who started in the eighties or even later uh, are have a bit of a, had a bit of a barren time, time of it. <laughs> yes. But uh, yeah, so it's apt that we should be coming uh, together during the World Cup because in addition to boasting World Cup winners among our former players and providing the England team with a steady stream of talent, leading right up to today with uh, Jordan Pickford being a World Cup semi-finalist, a European Championship finalist and Gareth Southgate's first choice keeper, uh, Everton Stadium is the only, ever, only club ground in the country to have hosted a World Cup semi-final and that of course being the Soviet Union against West Germany in 1966. Uh, for those of us uh, as Evertonians, knowing uh, how much our fans have historically appreciated the beautiful game, it's not surprising that Liverpool was chosen as one of the host cities. Uh, indeed, I think there are the Echo uh, carried a, a contemporary quote from a Swedish publication recently that read, this is the football city of England, not stiff and serious London, where you can hardly tell that there's a World Cup competition going on. The people here are really the supporters and friends of football. Uh, Rob, do you want to set the scene and talk about why Goodison specifically was selected, not only as a venue for the Group 3 games, but uh, for all the subsequent uh, rounds bar the final? And, uh, and then maybe we can get some, some sort of first-hand recollections of some of the great players who have graced our hello turf during the tournament. Yeah, I think people sort of going to grow dear old Goodison today, um, some of our younger sports may find it hard to believe that in the 1960s that you know, Goodison Park was one of the premier stadia in the, in the whole of, uh, in the land. And um, when it came to choosing venues, um, Everett, uh, Goodison was really second only to Wembley in the pecking order, uh, such was its prestige and uh, then state-of-the-art um, condition. So the decision was made, I think, in the autumn of 1963, so nearly three years before the actual cup finals, uh, they announced the ground selected, including you know, Roker Park, St. James's Park, etc. But even back then it was announced that, you know, the final clearly will be at Wembley, but uh, that Goodison will be hosting group, group games at the quarter final and of course one of the semi-finals. And interestingly, even back then, uh, not long afterwards, was a quote from uh, the organisers saying that if England did reach the semi-final, that, that they would be playing at Goodison Park, so that every team had to go on the Wembley turf before the final, as we'll probably come to, and a little later that didn't quite pan out that way. So, 
as I say, nearly three years ahead, uh, Goodison was given the pick and was was nominated there and then as the semi-final choice. And it gave us, you know, a couple of years to to get the stadium ready. Um, as I say, it was already one of the state-of-the-art stadia, but it did need some work to bring it up to the requirements of the, you know, the, the deluge of not just supporters, but the, the world's media uh, coming to site. So uh, there was various inspections from FIFA, from the FA, from the government. Um, and probably the biggest visible change at Goodison in the, in the next couple of years was that they had to knock down half of Goodison Avenue. Um, for fans going to Goodison now, if you go to the park end stand, you sort of go through some gates there into a car park. Well, basically, that was Goodison Avenue. It was a, a street of houses owned by the club where largely they were rented out at peppercorn rents to former players from the 30s, 40s and 50s. So these, these houses stood there owned by the club. But to expand the park end, the old park end stand, they had to knock down half of Goodison Avenue. Uh, the rest of it went in the 90s when we built the new park end stand that we have now. So so that was one of the big changes that, that was going on. They had to lengthen the pitch slightly to make it bring it up to uh, FIFA standard. Uh, loads of lines of cables being laid for the sort of world's press, for the communications, uh, or that kind of thing. Um, also, the sort of car park that we have now at the park end also used to have the training ground for Goodison. So Belfield wasn't used all the time. It was a little sort of cinder training ground. And I think that was used as a sort of marquee area in the World Cup for uh, sort of hospitality. And those of you familiar with the old Everton Supporters Club on County Road, I think it's been Orries and various other things. That was where the press would go after a match to type up their press reports and file their copy and send it off. So lots going on in the intervening couple of years so that uh, come the summer of 66, you know, Goodison was uh, at its very best. And then, of course, we come to the football. And uh, I think we were quite lucky in the, the teams that we had there. Obviously, uh, uh, Brazil, Hungary and uh, Portugal among them. And I think these gentlemen were at least at some of the games in their, in their shorts, no doubt. I don't know. Uh, I don't know who'll win to which games, gents. You can probably no, tell I, us. I went. I went to all five. I went to all five, Rob. Did you? Oh, I didn't realize that. I, yeah, I, I went to all I, five. Yeah. I went to two. So um, I, I went to the Portugal games, the the, uh, yeah. the Brazil game, and then the uh, the North Korea game. So they were the two I saw. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's one of those things where I mean. Uh, I'd been to the England Poland game in January in Goodison Park, thinking that that's my only chance to see you know uh, an international game there until I was a bit older. Yeah. And then <clears throat> two weeks before the World Cup finals, uh, I woke up one morning, I looked in the pillow, and there's an envelope on the pillow. So I opened it, you know, what's this, what's this? And inside were five World Cup tickets that my wow. dad had got me. So I was just absolutely over the moon and full of joy that I was, go- I was going to the World Cup of Goodison. Yeah. And, you know, I was a bit of... I was a bit of a football ball at the time. I haven't changed much really, and I, I, I kind of knew all, all, all the background stuff. What the players had done, all the research. I could talk about Georgie Asperukov for half an hour. You know, I, I, I really was, you know, quite up with, with you know the players and their standing in the world game and things. So I was so looking forward to to this competition. I remember yeah. the Brazil Bulgaria game because I think I'd rushed home from school. I got chained. I was sitting behind the front door at half four, waiting for my dad to come home from work to take me to the game. In the end. We got to the ground to, to Walton to County over half past six. And of course, in those days, two things stood out. One, uh, men went to the match wearing suits. So my dad got all dressed up with his white shirt, tight, and a suit to go to the game. And B, 
they all went they all went for their few pints of brown mix before the game. So I was dumped outside the Harlock with my bag of crisps, my bottle of pop sitting there with other urchins, you know, who 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 were given the same face. And then we went off to to to, to the game with about five minutes to spare. And the game itself it, the first game of Goodison was played on July the twelfth. Now anyone who knows anything about the religious history of Liverpool knows that's a bit, in the sixties in particular, that was quite a problematic day within the city with the the, the uh the Protestant march to to Southport, the commerce and the Battle of the Boyne, the Catholic yeah, yeah. yeah. So it really was Yeah, yeah, so it really was a strange day to have picked but fortunately fortunately the focus was on the football that day. And for that first game, I mean you know when the teams announced you know, in the Brazil team, you got Pelly and Gavincha. I mean, wow, what, 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 what more can you ask for, you know? And uh, the ball games had George Jasperukov, who we mentioned before, who Benfica tried to sign, who was the, you know, the guard as one of the best players in, in the Soviet bloc. So, had the makers of a really good game. And it, it kind of set the tone for the rest of the World Cup because from, from the first minute, Pelly was just getting hacked and hacked by the Bulgarian players. And it became a common theme of the World Cup that the European refs didn't really do anything to protect them whatsoever, which is really frustrating. But but the game itself, uh, I, I mean, my overriding memory of that first game is the fans, the Brazilian fans just looked so young, so healthy. They all were dressed in the team kit. And of course, in the 60s, you couldn't buy a team kit for love, no money. Yeah. So it was a real kind of yeah. eye-opener as well. And they all looked so healthy and joyous yeah. and full of foot. Because Liverpool wasn't, you know, was was kind of recovering from the effects of the Second World War at that time. So it, they just put a, a, a brio and a vibrancy to the city and to the ground as well. Uh, I was in the lower Gladys Street and... They, most of their fans were in the upper glass seat with the samba drum banging away as well. So the atmosphere was just, just absolutely incredible. And uh, of course, you know, two free kicks, go from Pele, go from Grincha, 2-0 Brazil. I mean, what more could you want from the first game of the World Cup? Paul, can I just ask you, you mentioned about the atmosphere there. I was reading an article today just genning up and I read the, the attendance was only sort of 47,500, which, I mean, Goodison back then could take 60-plus, I'm thinking. So how did it feel... You know, did, was the atmosphere that good? I'm just surprised. Well, that that was still more than at Man U, I think. I think we were. I think they were roughly around about half of what what we what we were getting for each of the games. So it was still a sizable. That's right, Mike. And also as well, Rob. I think uh, it, I mean, Gunston Park got the best gates outside of Wembley for the World Cup games. But for the group stages at Wembley, they gave tickets away to boost the number of fans in the stadium because they couldn't sell all the tickets. I think as well, I touched upon the 12th of July, there, a fact that also could have been that lots of people committed to being on the Battle of Boyne celebrations and, and didn't go to the game also. And... Uh, I think another factor is we're so used these days to seeing large contingents of away supporters at World Cups. Now, of course, Bulgaria would not have brought any supporters. So, 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 so straight away, you're losing the cohorts of fans who, who could be there on the ground. And uh, I also think as well, there might have been an element that not everyone realised World Cup tickets were still available. I, I remember in the Euros in 96, I thought I couldn't get a ticket because it all sold out. Then I saw something in the local press say, no, tickets are still available. I went and got tickets on that basis. And it might well have been the same thing as 66, Rob. I'm not sure. But it certainly didn't feel empty by any stretch of the imagination. That, yeah, we got, yeah, I agree with I'm the sure tickets the, because I, I just I remember at school that... that there was just myself and I think one of the one other lad who was going, so we everyone was quite impressed there by this. But I, so I had that impression for years that it was a sellout. 
And it was only later on, many years later, I looked at attendances, and I was really surprised to find that there were t- t- uh, t- tickets uh, available because it looked it, to me at that age, it looked like a full crowd anyway when we were in there, you know. But I t- totally agree with the carnival that atmosphere with the Brazilians. I mean, that was that was a that was a real eye opener. I mean, we're used to seeing that now, aren't we? With the even the Formula One, you know, they've got a driver there, you know, same exactly the same kind of thing, you know. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so that and, and you couldn't get the shirts, you know, you the Everton shirts and all. You, but you had to hunt high and low around the shops for different. None of the re- replica shirts the way we have now, you know. Uh, I, I remember when uh, when the Legion when um, uh, they they brought out that white shirt for uh, for Leeds, but that was the the seventies, and we were buying that just because it, it was a shirt that was closest to, to a team. No, it was nothing to do with Everton, yeah. but it, because it was um, the closest. To get to a replica shirt, so you're quite right regarding the shirts. Um, at that time at the World Cup, you know, but yeah, so yeah, that that was my one of my memories. Um, as well was the uh, the the crowd. Yeah, I mean, it's funny with the shirts, isn't it, Mike? Because I, I remember reading that that England before the World Cup tries to negotiate a deal whereby they could get a ten percent discount on the kit from Umbro, and I would just said, "Guys, we'll give you the kits for free. Don't worry, you can have the kits for free. You don't need to pay for them." Yeah, it's, it's just seems <laughs> sort of bizarre now, doesn't it? It seems yeah, sort yeah. of bizarre now, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. And then, John, should I talk about the Brazil Hungary game, Lyndon? Or yeah, sure, sure, go ahead. Yeah, so the, uh, the Brazil Hungary game was three days later on the Friday. So it went to that one, same routine, stuck outside the Harlock, pop and crisp, but um, got into ground just in time to see Benny plus Hungary 1 0 up. And once again, the, the whole, in the first game, the crowd had been so pro Brazil, but in the second game, there's kind of this feeling, let's support the other team for a change. Let's get behind Hungary because Brazil have won the World Cup twice. Let's support the underdog. And so the crowd really warmed to Hungary as the game progressed. And Florian Alberts in particular, the fans absolutely adored him. And it's it was a really good game of football. Pelly wasn't playing because he was injured as a consequence of the, the, the battering he took from the Bulgarian defenders. <clears throat> Uh, Hungary went on, went on to win 3 1. Uh, if my memory serves me correctly, I'm pretty sure Hungary's captain had to go off with an injury and came back on for the last 10 minutes with his arm in a sling. I think his name Mazzoli or something like that. I'm sure there's, there's footage of that somewhere. Fantastic goal from Farkas to put Hungary 2 1 up. And at the end, all you could hear from Gravity was the chant, Albert, 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 Albert. And they kept chanting it until he came back out. As there's a photograph, I think, you can see Albert comes out to the Gladys Street with his soda wall siphon, and he's drinking a soda wall siphon in front of all the fans, and they're all going absolutely wild, chanting his name. And you can see the Hungarian players just couldn't believe the reception they'd been given by the Goodison Park crowd that, that evening. And I suppose, Paul, in that in this day, that day and age, apart from maybe awareness of Pele and maybe Garincha, a lot of these players would have been fairly unfamiliar to a lot of the crowd, unless, unless you really had done your research. So it must have been the first time that a lot of supporters would have actually seen the likes of Albert, so there must have been hell of a pl- hell, you know, quite some players to make that impression in that nineteen. Yeah, years. exactly. Rob. I mean, I think the Echo did quite a good job of bringing out pre-match supplements to try and give you a bit of a background to the players if you weren't too familiar with them beforehand. But yeah, I mean, the, most of these players you hadn't seen on the TV before. You might have read about them in World Soccer, uh, or if you look at Christmas, you got the International Football Annual, which gave you all the details about these foreign stars who you'd never seen. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was a. Uh, it was 
a real education for anyone who had an interest in football because you may have heard the names. We had no idea what, what they looked like. I had no idea about their ability. And yeah. as ever, with any country from behind the Soviet bloc, they had this air of mystery about them because you know, they weren't kind of given the most positive mm-hmm. press in the UK at the time. So it, it, was, it was just fascinating to see. But, you, you know, I think obviously Hungary had the reputation in the 1950s as being you know, the, the, the Magnus and Magyars, the 60 win at, at Wembley. So most fans were really anxious to see what the modern version of Hungary looked like. And uh, I've only got one souvenir of the World Cup from Goodison. And bizarrely enough, it's the Hungary 1966 World Cup process that is, is always my pride and joy that I've hung on to it now for you know for the best part of you know, nearly sort of 50 years or so. So, but yeah, I mean the, the Hungarian team were, were absolutely fantastic to watch. And uh, I mean, Mike was mentioned before there about the gated old traffic where it's Goodison Park. I mean, one of the major factors was Brazil played all their games at Goodison Park, and if Brazil had progressed. They would have played the quarterfinals and possibly the semi-final at Goodison Park as well, which you know, for anyone who's grown up with the legends of Brazilian football, that that was a real treat in prospect. But why Goodison got three Brazil games and United, my nice didn't get any, I've no idea, Rob. I don't know if you know anything about that. No, no. But uh, we'd take oh, yeah, it all day de- long. De- definitely, t- definitely take it, yeah. I, th- I think also the, the, uh, the, the TV c- coverage, I mean, have to bear in mind the match of the day had only started. It was a couple of years earlier, possibly sixty fourth. Yeah. And although there had been uh, programs on in the fifties, so you well know about this, Rob. But they, but these were only sort of ten minute kind of summaries, really. And you can still see some of those on there, YouTube now. Um, so we weren't getting any TV co- co- coverage. Not, well, not nothing like we get now, of course. You know, it's uh, t- twenty four hours. You know, but it's. Uh, but then it was like very sparse, and you did that. You you did wait for the echo to bring something out, or you know one of the uh, the nationals, you know. And um, yeah, so it was so that type of information wasn't readily to hand. You did have to go and search for it, you know. And I can remember having uh, football and annuals as well. We'd have to refer back to to see what what the squads had been previously, you know, during the period previous year or the '62 World Cup, you know. And that's where I was getting a lot of my information from. Um, um, at, at, at that time as well. So, yeah, you you really did have to search for it. It, it, it wasn't uh, it, it wasn't widely available. And and this um, obviously with Brazil losing that game, did that mean it was a must win that they had when they next came up against? The next game uh, was a must win. Yeah, seems to go up against Portugal. Yeah, in the, uh, yeah. yeah. So the, that was the Portugal. Did did you want to go on to Portugal Brazil? I remember going. I mean, my my sort of routine was different than uh, through my dad. We he didn't drink with dad, so um, so we went sort of in the pubs uh, uh, beforehand. He was a Methodist, you know, so those uh, the beliefs uh, took over really. But you know, I didn't know much about that at the, that age anyway. But we'd be parking up on the football car park, and it was that walk across Stanley Park which I loved, and I still love that now. You know, my lads as we're approaching the. Uh, the ground, I like that build up, you know, and that's what I remember from those from those days. In fact, the, even the car we were using then was a, a Jawa Javelin. Now, if you, but if you read David France's book, he was going in the same car, which I couldn't. I we didn't know anybody else who owned one in Liverpool. You know? Whenever we met anybody, we waved frantically at them. I remember meeting somebody in their Hoyley. You know, we saw another uh, another family with the car. We spent about two hours talking to them. You know, so the fact that David France had this same car, I thought was amazing. Which I only found out uh, last year, I think. 
So, so we had this like, and he had a running board down the side. He was really sort of an American style car, you know. So, so that's my m- memory of, uh, of of having that car and going to the to the games. And a couple of weeks later, we got an Austin Cambridge, which was this very very sleek car. But um, yeah, that was uh, that 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 was a, a memory of going there, and then the walk across and the build the build up. <laughs> Um, and of course, it was all about Pele. You know, we as, as youngsters, we just want wants to see him. And then, but emerging at that time as well was uh, Eusebio, of course. So he was the he was the new star. And so, so, so to be able to see both of them in the same game was the real attraction. Um, and I'm not as well versed as Paul on all the plays. He's done massive, massive research on this more than I did um, at that time. I, I had all the albums and you know the football ad, ad albums and all that kind of thing and. Used to talk about souvenirs. I've still got that. So that that's the. So, but I I don't remember any other programs coming out. Paul, but I think where was that it? Where, where the match day pro because I haven't seen any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two programs. There's the one you got there, Mike. They covered all the games up until the final, and then there was a separate one for the final. Yeah, yeah, that was it. Yeah, that was it. And 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 so uh, within this, we had all the all the squads in in there on each page, and uh, but that but that was it really. And then you in the back, you could fill in all, all the scores. I'm not going to embarrass myself, but you see writing in there. So, um, but yeah, so I've still got that. And uh, what what else have we got here? There we are. Uh, uh, the, uh, the scrapbook with a well cut Willie on the back, but when I start to fantastic. look, when I start to look at it, um, <laughs> all the things that are inside it, <laughs> so it's, it's, it's nothing to do with the World Cup here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's full of Everton stuff. I, I won't bore you with all that, but it's uh, yeah. So that, that I've still got those souvenirs. Um, but uh, yet, so so to me, it was it was all about Pele, and then to see what happened to him in that game was just heartbreaking as a youngster, you know. That and um, I, I can remember him getting chopped down uh, quite early on in the game, um, and then he got up and carried on playing. And then they were in the he was in the pe- uh, was it just outside the penalty? I think he was hacked down, and then hacked down again immediately. It was in the same movement. He, you know, he, he got up to try and well, to try and get up and play the ball, and he was immediately hit again. Now both of those would have been a red, you know. And it was a there was it. What was the, what was the ref saying? Was it crab? What was it? I think. He, 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 I think he was a. No, no, he was. It was George George McCabe was McCabe, the referee. That was it. Yeah, but but he was he was the closest. It wasn't like he was on the other side of the pitch. He was right by it. Yeah, he was right next to it. Yeah. Both of them would have been a red card now, you know. But it, but he 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 went off. He was carried he was carried off by the doctor and the train or whatever, and he was on the touchline for for quite a while, uh, and they they patched him up, and then he came back on again. But he could hardly walk, you know. And I'm sure you've seen clips of it since, you know. And he ball would be going to him, and he'd be hobbling around trying to. He couldn't put any power in what he was doing, and. It was just sad to see, it, you know, and it was he was he was kicked off the park, you know, um, a great shame. And of course, there's that iconic moment at the end of the game where he'd swap shirts and he didn't have a shirt on, and then as he's walking off, somebody put a coat over him, and that's and that's when the photograph was taken. That iconic picture, he's got the Mac on and he's looking over his shoulder, you know, back at the what what might have been, you know. 
So, um, but Paul, do you want to talk about the game? The the, the goals, maybe. Yeah, I'll just add. I mean, you you covered there, you no, know, perfectly, Mike. But I, th- I think, uh, look, look, no, the, the lack of protection given to Pelly was an absolute disgrace. It, it, yeah. it really was. I, if you look at the world, if you look at the World Cup, European referees, you know, I have to say, we're, we're so biased against South American nations, it was untrue. So there were five sendings off in the World Cup. Four of them were South Americans. Four of them were sent off against West Germany. Draw your own conclusions. Uh, but you know, it's uh, it, it's. <laughs> It, it really, it really was you no know, criminal the, the way that yeah. the skilled players you know were not protected and and that, that double incident you mentioned there, Mike. That, I I remember cringe the time. Why is the referee not doing anything yeah. about this? Yeah. And as you said as well, it was it was the change of the guard was because Eusebio was absolutely superb on the day, and I think some of the treatments from Pelly got overshadowed by how good Eusebio was, and there was a kind of feeling you know in in the press that it was the change of the guard. No, but yeah, Sabre's definitely the, yeah. the new master of world football. He, you know, you know, it, it, it kind of makes, you know, it kind of maybe laughed the other day and saying Ronaldo might have equaled Eusebio's World Cup goal scoring record. Yeah, it's taken Ronaldo five World Cups to do that. Eusebio <laughs> played in one World well, Cup, yeah. one World Cup, you know. Yeah, so there's a slight difference there, isn't there? Yeah, but Eusebio was absolutely superb from start to finish. And I think maybe, you know, um, with him. No, you, I would say 1966, you say, but it was at the peak of his physical powers. He could just seem to bounce off challenges and he wouldn't affect it. And the, the power he could generate from, from his shots was yeah. just superb. Scored two goals. Uh, and I would say if Brazil had had a decent keeper, they might have been able to get some out the game. But the, the keepers are bagging theirs from start to finish. Yeah. And, and that, that, that cost them dearly. Uh, yeah, I, I think at the end, there, there was a, there, there was a, what you're reacting yeah, what your recollection was, Mike, but there was you no know, applause for, for Portugal, you know, they deserved to win, but there's just real sadness that, that we, we lost the opportunity to see Pele play more games to go to some Park. And I remember almost being heartbroken seeing the Brazil fans outside the Glava Street in tears. Some were giving the shirts away to Everson fans because they didn't need them anymore. And it, you know, it really was, you just, you, just, you just felt for them because they didn't deserve to go out the competition like that. Yeah, yeah, I quite, I quite agree on that, and it was, it, it was just heartbreaking. I'm, 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 especially being a youngster as well, because you know what, how the kids are when they're looking up to these iconic players. Well, that's what that 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 was us, you know, and and the and players like Pelly, you had the pictures on the bedroom wall, you know, you might have been an Everton fan, but you but you marvelled at um, at these players. I don't think I'd be having a picture of uh, Ronaldo up there now, but. But you know, but Holly and uh, Eusebio, yeah, you know, I mean, they, these these were the guys, you know, and it was, it it was it was heartbreaking to see see this, I, and to an extent, I was I did feel sorry for Eusebio, maybe later on, when it, it did seem to overshadow his performance because he he was amazing. But yeah, the goalie flapped around. I mean, I remember him parrying shots and it was dropping down. They were head heading the ball in, you know, and it, this kind of thing. So. Yeah, the, the, they could have done with a, with a better goalie at, um, at the time. But, yeah, it was sad to see them out, outside. I, I didn't see anyone giving shirts away, but I, I, I can well imagine it. Yeah, it was, it was sad. Gents, for, um, for for the younger supporter, who who in modern football would uh, you compare Eusebio to if they're sort of looking for the style? You know, was it like a, a young Rooney or was he sort of bigger and stronger than that? Yeah, he's big. That's a really good question, Rob. I mean... 
he's probably a, a cross between Rooney and Haaland because he's he, he was he was so yeah. physically strong you know, for that era as well. He was impossible to knock off the ball. Yeah. I think yeah. we'll touch on Northgate again in a few minutes time, but in that game in particular, he, he you know he couldn't be dealt with, and yet he just had an eye for goal. And so, whether there's a modern equivalent or not, it's hard to say because the game's kind of changed in many ways since then. But if you put me on the spot, I think Rooney's. A, a, a good comparison, but maybe with a touch of uh, Harland about him as well. Yeah, I think he was a stronger player, wasn't he, than, uh, than, than Rooney? He, he had a bigger build out than mm. him, and he was very hard to knock off the ball. He was a real, he's a real bull of a player, you know. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't particularly tall, I don't think. I, you know, he wasn't as tall as Harland, but he, but he, he was just so strong, you know. He just, yeah, you just couldn't shake him off the ball. Yeah, amazing player. I mean, yeah, in the North, the North career game. You know, I think the physique of the North North Koreans they didn't help either. You know that I think their average height was only about five five. I think, um, or, or overall, so yeah. they, they they had to play a different style. You know, and um, but yeah, they, once he got the ball, he was very d- difficult to, uh, to push off it. Do you want to watch North North Korea game, Rob? Yeah, the I mean, the, my dad went to a lot of the games, if not all of the games. But the one he would always talk to me about was. Yeah. North Amazing, Korea yeah. uh, against yeah. Portugal, and you know, you know, decades on, he would still sort of wax lyrical. So, uh, be fascinating just, to hear. Just a bit of context to all that. You know, they were they were playing up at um, Middlesbrough's ground, um, first of all, and so we would get news coming, you know, filtering over about what what was happening um, in that group, and of course, they then they then uh, beat the Italians to uh, uh, to put uh, put them out, and. Uh, the, I always remember the other uh, score of that was a uh, pack pack Duick. In fact, I think he got three goals in the uh, in the in the group stage. But the, there was a there was a political issue before that because you know the, as a re- remnant of the uh, the Korean War, we we our, our country or the government hadn't officially re- recognised North Korea. So before the the games even began, there was a big issue. About the the government wanting to ban them, you know, not not going to grant them any visas. You see, so so what happened after after that is that FIFA got involved as as they do, and they spoke to the FA and they basically thre- threatened them and said, if you don't let them in, you don't get the games. So the the FA had to then do some deals, you know, with the good the government uh, to uh, to get them uh, to be allow- allowed in. You see. So then, then it came down to things like uh, the national anthem and the flag, and all because you know, these are the finer points, then, aren't they? If you, if there's a political turmoil, we, we've seen this with the issue with the Americans and the Iranian flag. You know, it it continues, but the but in the the, the situation there, they decided that the national anthem was only going to be played in the first game and the final. So that was the compromise. They thought we'll get round that. There's no way North Korea are going to get to the final. So and we know England are in the first game, so you know we'll just hope they don't get to the final. So that that kind of tempered it, and they and they cracked on. You see, but that so there was a political issue first, and then even when they were playing up in Erston uh, Park, it's where they where they were based. I, initially, people were a bit wary about what was going to happen, but the contrast then was when they arrived and you know they met the mayor and the the the, the civic reception and all this sort of thing and. And then when they saw them play, I mean, the the the, the Middlesbrough crowd really took them on board, you know. And uh, and in fact, they followed them down. There's there's they, there's estimations of about three to five thousand uh, people That's from right. Middlesbrough yeah. who came down 
you know, to watch the game, you know. So, so there was all that backstory first of all about how they turned this political situation around, even be, even before before they arrived, you know. But Pac Dewick was the star. I mean, I, I can remember his name being bandied round all over the place. And you and your kids, you, you want to be a player on the on the pitch. There was loads of us on the backfield all wanting to be Pac Dewick. Never mind Eusebio. This was the new kid on the block, you know. So, uh, so that's my memory of that um, as well, you know. So, um, and that's before they uh, before they even uh, kick, kick, kick the ball. But um, but yeah, but they, even, even with that sort of backstory, nobody, nobody could have. I say that they, they scored it immediately, which I mean, it's to us by that stage, especially after the Brazil game and you know the group the group games, we thought Portugal were, were going to win the cup. You know, I, I, we we're all used to the normal hype of, of England, you know, and even more so when we're playing at home, and we all we all kind of expected England to win, but really not thinking we would do. That that was between my me and my pals, but when we saw uh, Portugal, we thought, you know, they they'll win it. They're easily the best side. And Eusebio's the new guy. He's got four in this game. Or you you know that's what what will happen. But I don't know. How about you, Paul? I mean, that that was that was the impression I got um, at that time when I was a kid, even before the game began. Yeah, very similar to you, Mike. You know, I think we we all thought Portugal you know, were the strongest team in the competition at that stage, and uh, yeah, my my kind of override, like you, I knew the name Pat Duick, and I think most fans are taking an interest in North Korea because they, they kind of went from a situation that seemed to be going out to suddenly Middlesbrough crowd fell in love with them. They pulled off that, that win against it. That, that went against Italy, and don't forget that Italy team two years later were European champions. Four years later, the, the World Cup finalists. So yeah. you know, it, it wasn't exactly you know, they the, were the playing an average side. So it was a fantastic result for them. And uh, yeah, I me mean, and I think. In some ways, North Korea created a level of interest in the World Cup that it needed at that stage because yeah. the group stage had been quite uninspiring. And we were so lucky because the best games at the group stages were at Goodison Park by an absolute mile. We had the biggest crowds outside of Wembley. We had the best players there. We had Pelly. We had Eusebio. We had Florida Albert. We had the we had Gurincha. We had the yeah. cream of the world's football talents all strutting their stuff at Goodison Park. Yeah, North Korea, I mean, I remember getting there about five minutes beforehand. And at the time, you know, Liverpool was was quite a uni-racial city at the time. And going to Gladys, I was stunned by the number of Chinese Oriental type people who had never seen a football game before, who suddenly appeared to be in large numbers yeah, across, yeah. across the Gladys, which you know, added a different, different sort of touch to things. And like you say, Mike, North Korea scored after one minute. And I still remember people come and say, what's the score, lad? North Korea win one. No, no, no. What's the score? No, North Korea win one. Yeah, they are. really And at the kickoff, you mentioned the, the difference in stature. I think Portugal had a player called Torres, who was six foot four. Six he was a foot yeah. taller. The, yeah. He was a foot taller than most wow. North Korean players. So you can't there before the game thinking, it was a corner here, but it's no contest, isn't it? They're going to win the game quite clearly. Yeah. But the North Koreans started off like terriers. They were super fit. They harried. They chased everything. Yeah. And they were just 1-0 you know, to um, North Korea. And then suddenly after 24 minutes, North Korea are 3-0 up. And the Gladys I'm sure your dad would have said the same, Rob. The Gladys has gone absolutely bizarre. People just can't understand yeah. what the hell is going on. Portugal looks shell-shocked. Oh, you can- 
uh, they were all singing easy, easy, right? like, and, and then that, and then they started right, my three, three, one, three, you know, and then so they got three. It was incredible. Sorry, go on. Uh, and then they started chanting "We want four, didn't they? When, yeah, when, when, right, when yeah. it got to three, then as well, you know. Yeah. And of course, in the mod in the modern game, any team would have closed the game down at that stage. They slowed things down, kept play possession yeah. football. But Korea went for, went for the fourth goal. They didn't try to close the game down. No, because you know, well, sit back. You know, we know the modern game. It never happened. This just kept it's going. A, you know. Never, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it made for a fantastic spectacle, and still to this day. I would say it's probably the best game of football I've ever seen in terms of you know, the shock at the start, the fight back from Portugal, the level of skill from both teams. Uh, it was it was just an absolute. You know, if you were introduced someone to football for the first time and get and took them to that match, you'd have them for life because it was such a fabulous spectacle. But yeah, I mean that was a good support, which is. It was incredible, and there, there was quite a sizable Portuguese contingent there trying to get the team back in the match, given given their support. But everyone wants a career to win. We were desperate yeah. for them to hang on, and you know when you say we got the first goal back, but he, he kind of just brushed two defenders out the way and rifled it, and he thought, okay, you know, the, 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 and then he got a second goal back with the penalty, uh, penalty just before yeah. half time, and yeah, but Torres was brought down, and so I think Korea got to half time. Yeah, Torres was through. It might. I think he just clipped his he foot was. as he was. Going. Yeah, that was it, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they got the penalty. Yeah. It was just before half time as well. My, I think if they got to half time at three one, then it would have been a completely different game. Uh, but then the second half, it was just a Eusebio show, and Portugal attacking the Glasgow team in the second half, and he he, he was just. A, a one-man exhibition. I mean, he was knocking Korean defenders off the ball. You know, with, with, you know, but he couldn't even stop him or, or, or prevent him building up speed or pace. And if you see the penalty he gets to put Portugal 4-2 up, um, it, it could have been three penalties and one. He, he gets side down by two or three times. But he keeps going, he keeps going. He, went from, you know, there's no, he just went through, didn't he? He'd be playing after playing and he took him down. Absolutely. Whacked and he whacked him, yeah. didn't he? And he was out, you know, lying down there, he got up and scored. You know, he's just amazing. And at, at that stage, then the score, the score is effectively you save your four North Korea three because I've never seen one man single handedly bring a, bring a country back into the game. And apparently, at that time, you know, we're in the because bizarrely enough, all the quarterfinals you mentioned TV coverage there, Mike. All the quarterfinals kicked off at three o'clock on a Saturday. We only had two terrestrial channels, only one, and both channels showed England and Argentina. So, all all the people at home were watching seeing these score flashes coming up saying it's 3 0 North, North Korea beating Portugal. At Wembley, when the scores from the scoreboards, people are looking around after shocking what the hell is going on at Goodison Park as well. So it, it was just an absolutely fantastic exhibition of football. And once you say we got the fourth goal, you knew North Korea were gone at that stage. They got a fifth goal to kind of put the ice on the cake. But it was just such an absolutely yeah. fabulous exhibition. Yeah. It, it really was, you know. And like you, might even now, I can almost see myself in the game. I can feel myself yeah. watching the accent as it took place because yeah. it was just, it was just such a majestic exhibition of individual skill from Eusebio. But for the first twenty-four minutes, North Korea played the level of football that was better than you know, any team at up to that stage of the World Cup had demonstrated fantastic football, and it sets us up nicely for. Port- Portugal to go to Wembley for their World Cup semi-final, and we look forward to England coming to our semi-final. Yeah. Over to you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so so how so when uh, when uh, they did the dirty on us and when Lindland didn't come, how, how did that come about? And how did how did how did people learn about it? And what was the reaction um, on Merseyside? I can't remember a great deal. But we, I just remember the, the disappointment, uh, and we just thought we've been we've been done. Um, but apart from that, I mean, Paul, Paul, Paul would know all the ins and outs. You know, I, I, I can't remember. Apart from that. Well, I remember when my dad got me the tickets. He said he made a big thing saying to me, "Look, if England gets to semi-finals, you've got a semi-final ticket." So that, 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 that was fantastic news. Yeah. Um, and then it's um, there were two different schedules published, which is kind of where the confusion came from. The FA had published a schedule where I think uh, the game was at Goodison Park and FIFA published a schedule whereby the game was at Wembley. I'm not quite sure which way around that worked, but there were two different Let schedules going check. around. <laughs> 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 it might well be in them. It'll be in that, yeah. And then <laughs> apparently a decision was made at a higher level than Goodison Park that they felt that the Germany US USSR semi final, if it had been played at Wembley, would not sell out, and they didn't want a half empty Wembley stadium for for, for the World Cup semi final. Whereas they knew that you know, that the England semi final at Wembley would would attract pretty much a full capacity crowd. So yeah, it it, it was a it, you know to use the childhood word, it was a swiss because we've been led to believe that that England were going to play at Goodison Park, and 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 they didn't, and of course. If you're a World Cup sinner, you know, you, you were asked a question. You know, uh, uh, that's that game was played on the Saturday. Uh, the the semi finals played at Goodison Park on the Monday. Now, if England played at Goodison Park, England would have spent the Sunday travelling to Merseyside the first time they left London during the World Cup to play that game. Portugal would you know would have had two days to get down to their semi final because that the second one would have been at Wembley, which gave them extra day training as well. But because uh, they they lost the day's training because of the travel down to London. You could make a case that that kind of worked against them a little bit, but they, there was quite. I, I was quite surprised as a kid going to that semi final game because uh, I know well, like, like, you have to remember this. You know, uh, people may, may know that you no know, Liverpool was the second most bombed city in World War Two, so the fact that England being taken away from us and being replaced by West Germany. Did not go down well with the majority of the population. I, mean, I know, I know, my grandparents were, were so anti-German; it was untrue yeah. given their experience in World War Two, and they weren't the only ones. So there was real negativity uh, before the game. If you look at the attendance of the semi-final, it was thirty-eight thousand, which was the lowest of, of yeah. all the games at Goodison Park, I think. So that, that kind of gives you some indication of you know the the uh, the upset. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, you, yeah, and then. I think for for the first time as well, uh, there was a massive away contingent at Goodison Park with the West West Germany brought loads of supporters with them as well, or with the fire screen that was there. Most of them were at the size of the ground rather than glaciers, as I recall. But basically, you know, given Liverpool's kind kind of socialist nature as a city, you know, the, the, everyone wanted the USSR to win because you know, we, we we kind of felt cheated by, by by the whole England thing. I think there are some pictures on the Echo website as well of banners being held up, as, you know, uh, down with FIFA, down with down, down with the FA. I think there's some being arrested before the start of the game for trying to run on the pitch with with a banner or something. So, the, as for the World Cup games, it's generally I went to they had a negative atmosphere before the game even starts, and, uh, and, and it was quite it was quite noticeable. I mean, masses did. 
Masters didn't approve when I think it was Ziggy Health did, did a a full a full roll and dive when he got touched by a Russian player and then ended up with the Russian uh, well I think Chislenko their star striker got sent off after that tackle. Uh, Lev Yashin probably had his worst game in the USSR kit because he let let one from Beckenbauer from twenty five yards out sail past him, which on a on a normal day he would have stopped. And uh, my, my overriding memory at the end of the game. Uh, there were loud boos and jeers from, I, I would say, you know, all the non-West German fans in the stadium. And they started to do a lap of honour. And as they came to the Gladys Street, you just heard this call, call to, go home, your bums, go home, your bums, go home, your bums, go home. As uh, everyone ju- ju- just turned on them because there was just this anti-kind of German sentiment came to the fore with the way they played, the way they got the victory, and also the fact that nobody... When they bought the semi-final ticket, thought they'd be watching West Germany. They thought they'd be watching England. So it it, it kind of left just just kind of a, a little sour taste at the end. Uh, but you know, I mean, I think also as well, it's, it's I, I know Everton are the only league club to have hosted a World Cup semi-final. Everton, if you bring Los Rudateros into the equation, are the only team to have hosted two World Cup semi-finals because our equivalent club in Chile also hosted the 1962 World Cup final as well, uh, semi-final as well. And also Pele scored at both Everton grounds in two different World Cups. So the, 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 there's lots of connections between Everton and Chile as well. But uh, yeah, it, it was, I mean, looking back now, okay, I may be looking through those tinted spectacles, I accept that, but what an experience it was for me as you will have a 10. You know, uh, last year at primary school, getting ready to go to, to go to secondary school, and it, yeah. it, 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 it's just, just, it's just absolutely stayed with me you know, th- uh, you know, th- throughout my life. And uh, I think as well, you underestimate the impact it had on Liverpool as as a city. And uh, one of the things I'm trying not to go off on one here, but um, if you watch the 1966 official film Goal, <laughs> <I'm starting> <laughs> sorry, yeah, yeah, go. So, Starts off all these, all these minis, all these girls, all these so-called dolly birds, all going to Wembley and this party, and what a glamorous city London was. And then it switched to the grim, dull, grim streets of Liverpool, and it shows all the terrace streets and the washing across the line. And then watching and thinking, well, you know, you could have done that for London. East End of London was like that in the sixties, mate. You know, and, and why was London so trendy? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it down to certain bands, the Beatles? Hey, where did they come from? Oh, Liverpool, surprise, surprise. <laughs> but yeah, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The narrative. But that 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 film absolutely does my head in because it's just so anti the north of England, so yeah. anti Liverpool, and so and you know the, you know you mentioned the quote before Rob about, about the Swedish journalists comparing London to to Liverpool in terms of you know, how they receive football. You know Liverpool, you know we won the FA Cup. Liverpool won the league. We were the football capital of England at that time. You know, uh, the supporters who attended Goodison Park were knowledgeable football supporters who knew their stuff. They weren't celebrities, they weren't hangers-on, they weren't showbiz personalities, they weren't there because they felt it was a place to be seen as. We were genuine football fans from a football city who loved their football and I'm sure all the players, and I'm sure this comes across in Steve Zocek's book as well, all the players who played at Goodison Park in the World Cup would leave, would leave Goodison Park with nothing but fond memories of how passionate the crowds were. Yeah, yeah, that well said, yeah. And I think I mean also you, you know, there's there's that great photograph as well of the of the of the t- the table by the tunnel on the pitch where you've got the you've got the FA Cup the Championship which the Reds had and then the World Cup in the middle you know and it it just encapsulated there the city at that time 
And I think it was was it Ray Wilson and Roger Hunt who were, were running around the pitch there with the World Cup. So it, right, yeah. that was afterwards, you know. And it, so all that kind of thing was just summed up what you what you just rightly said there, you know, about how how passionate uh, the city was um, um, at that time. But can, can I just go back to uh, North North Korea for for just a moment, just to on the back on the where that that ended up because when they went home. They were faced as like these world beaters and everything, and Pak Buik was the was the big star. Not that they had great stars in the in a, in a communist state, but that didn't last long because it, the new ideology sort of came in, and they were they they gradually became uh, like a, a kind of enemies of the state because they were winning three nil and then lost lost the game, so their reputation was was just completely trashed. Within a year, within a year or, or so, um, you know, from uh, right up 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 there to becoming a zero, and some of them were packed off onto on to the outskirts of towns or uh, work workplaces in the forests or or whatever, and and it took many years for them to be to become reassimilated within, within into society. Pak eventually became uh, the national team coach, but that wasn't. That wasn't until he was in his sixties. I remember, think. I think he did carry uh, uh, the Olympic flame in his seventies at one at one stage, you know. But it, that was much la- later on, of course. But I think there was a guy from a some uh, some uh, Pogos a Middlesbrough fan, I think, who was trying to find more about them because of their link, and he he got put permission to go over there and to make a documentary. I think I think it was called the, the greatest game of the lives of that. I think something along along those lines. But he met up with many of the players. I think there was about seven or eight who'd survived. And he got permission to bring them over. And so they went to Urson Park and they, you know, they met everybody. They were received there and everyone appreciated them coming over and everything. They, they were in the Commons, I think. They, there was a, re, a reception there. But then they came at, at Goodison Park. And it was this was 2002. And I just happened to be there. It was a night game. <clears throat> I just happened to be there with my lads. I can't. I can't for the life of me remember which game it was, but and they came out at half time. Everyone gave them the big cheer, you know, um, half time, and then and then after the game, we we always used to take our time coming out at the ground, especially when I had uh, two young lads as well. That bit the crowd go, um, but we just taken uh, the atmosphere, and as we're walking round onto Good- Goodison Road at the players' entrance. There they all are. They've all come out. And they're just standing about waiting for the transport. And so I went over and I, got, I identified Pak Dewick because he was there. I met him. Spoke out <laughs> him right? And I, I was chatting, well, trying to talk to him because we didn't know each other's language. So I was kind of doing all this sign language and I was going to the like pointing at me. I, I was this big, you know, trying to say, I was, I was like that. And I saw you in there, and he was going, ah, oh, like shaking. He's bringing the others over to me and shaking hands. He was there, you know. It was a wonderful moment of like that, that communication with somebody, you know, uh, different language and, and culture, and being able to relive that again from when I was a kid, you know. It was a, a special moment that. So I met Pak Dewick. It's <laughs> wonderful. Are you, going on, are you going on an exchange visit, Mike? Yes, yes, there, there is a return visit planned on the anniversary, yes, this year. <laughs> With Dennis Rodman. Mike, <laughs> have, you written about, have, you, have you written about that on Toffee Web? 
I haven't. No, I, on Toffee Web. Sorry. You, you... <laughs> no, I haven't. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> Rival website. But that's for London's benefit. <laughs> no, no, no. Seriously, man, that's a, that is an absolutely fantastic story that more people need to know about. You met Pat Dewick and Goodison Park. Life doesn't get any better than that, you know. It really doesn't. I kind of stopped at the point where I was going to say. And I used to be you on the backfield, you know. <laughs> get that. <laughs> Quite difficult to mime it. I, I, that, that is such a, a brilliant story, Mike. I love it. Brilliant story. It's, did you get any photographs or so when you were with them? Nowadays, it's the first thing you do, isn't it? You know, yeah, all you those of course. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but I didn't have. Yeah, I, I know. You know, I didn't have a camera with me or a mobile phone. There was like a brick, wasn't it? So yeah, yeah. God, yeah, what a chance! Yeah, I wish I had because they're all they were all there outside the, at the players' entrance, and it would have been a lovely shot yeah. that yeah. a team a team pick. You know. Oh God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. yeah. But I don't even Absolutely. know what game it was. I, I can't remember the game. I was I was looking at it earlier on, trying to frantically trying to find which match it was. I don't. I can't remember. It, it was an evening game. And then later on, I think we walked down the down the Goodison Road, and that, and there's little Limpar was just standing about having a chat with a few fans, and a a, 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 a Cotty as well. So it was all going on <laughs> in a Goodison Road on on that particular <laughs> night, you know. So yeah, <laughs> but I can't remember which game it was. So obviously after '66, Goodison did host some more internationals in the Sudan. I think some home internationals. I think Northern Ireland played a home match at Goodison yeah, due to the political one, yeah. climate over over the water. And the last would I be right, the last time we had an international fixture was it the Brazil Japan game in ninety five or have we had a, a fixture since that you chaps can remember? I, I, I think you're right, Rob. I was at the seventy three game, the, the the Northern Ireland game. I, I was I was quite surprised at the disinterest in that, especially amongst all my mates, you know. Um I think I ended up going on, on my own. I think I, I, normally I'd be going with them, and but no, nobody wants to go. Um, I don't think the crowd was was particularly. I think it was only about twenty. Was it twenty nine? I think it. They, the, it wasn't a big crowd. But the, but then we did have the likes of, we did have the likes of Alan Ball playing, although he'd gone by, by then. But uh, Tommy Jackson, uh, Hamilton, uh, were playing there for Ireland. And Clements, of course, but we did that was after. I think he was still at. Uh, yeah, Co- Coventry then I think, um, but yeah, there was a lot. Of- I think I think he was playing manager for Northern Ireland in that game, possibly Dave Clements. Was he? Uh, yeah, possibly. Uh, or, or... It was a decent side. I mean, it was we had, you know, it was a strong team. We had, Bobby Moore was uh, was in it. There were Martin Peters. There's Alan Ball. Uh, Shilton had, had just started playing. Um, there was a couple of I remember Nish playing. He, that, I think that was his first game. And up front was uh, Chivers and the, the Shannon, and I think they put. I think John Richards played. Remember, he was the Wolves forward, and he he got thirty six goals. I think the, the the previous season, so he he got his place. Um, Pat Jennings had a poor poor game. I remember one going on, on, under his body. You know, it's one of those where you t- you you go to s- scoop it and it goes underneath. So that was a header from uh, Martin Shivers, and that um, was the park end. But he. But they, that was one nil, I think, and then they they pulled it back to one all when uh, Clements got a penalty, and then she then she scored again at, um, near near the end. 
So yeah, so I, I I remember that that game fairly well, but uh, yeah, I I I can I can remember being near the front beat of the Gladys Street because it was still the uh, the the half moon um, behind the goal, you know, before that that was demolished. So I remember being down at the front uh, at the, uh, for that. Yeah. Well, what was the next one? I think it's one I might just go back to that. I mean, both correct me if I'm wrong here. I think, wasn't that the game where John, Don, Don Revy was the ICV co-commentator? And I think that might have been the game when John Moores approached Don Revy to discuss the possibility of him taking the Everton manager's post. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah. It'd be, uh, if it was 1973, the timing would be right. Well, yeah. Where was the first ground? Yeah. Where was the ground when the, when England got beat at home? First time? Good. Goodison Park. That was Goodison. Yeah. Yeah. That was the Irish 49. team 2 0 in about 48, 1948. Yeah, scored, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, going the other way. Did any of you go to the Brazil game? The uh, Sorry, the Brazil yeah. Japan game? No, I think I did. What I do remember, though, I think it was Everson made a pay on the gate. And quite a few were looked out, weren't they? When you think about it, you know, Brazil come back to Goodison for the first time in 30 years, why the club never thought to make it all tick? <laughs> You're paying the game for, for Brazil comes to Goodison. Mm. I mean, come on. You know, it didn't take much yeah. foresight to realise there might be a bit of interest. Might be a bit of interest, might be a bit of interest in this game, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember anything about that one. No problem. To, to me, it's a shame that uh, obviously we're going to be moving in a, in a year or two and that... There's not an opportunity to have one oh, more yeah, international game at Goodison. Sadly, it won't happen because the stadium no longer meets any sort of FIFA or UEFA specifications. Uh, but it wouldn't it have been fantastic to manage to get one more, one more international game at Goodison. But I suppose now we've got to look ahead till 2028, yeah. perhaps if uh, if we if uh, the bid is won and uh, our new stadium could be hosting international football. So. Only six years to wait, possibly. Yeah, given given all that these these fantastic memories that you know, you've both been sharing, I, I imagine the answer is fairly obvious. But what are your feelings on on leaving Goodison and and moving to to Brownie Moor Dock? Oh, it's hard, isn't it? It's I mean, you just love love the place, but it is tired. You know, mm-hmm. I I remember talking to to Rob the, not long ago because he's you've got season tickets in the in the Bullens. Um, I I just remember the last time yes. I, I I was I was in there I couldn't move me there was so little, little space I've grown since you know but I I remember that there's no <laughs> leg, leg room in there at all you know um, but yeah it's it is tired and it but it I'll just miss that like I said to you earlier on you parking up on the footy car park and that walk walk across there was, there was one lovely moment where my son was playing guitar on he was in the fan zone. He's played there about six times, and uh, but we were late. Me and, me and my other son were a bit late, and as we were rushing over the park, and then we could hear him coming, you know, playing. And it was just that it was just lovely to as we're approaching the ground and it's looming up, and then we could hear him playing. You know, it was just a special moment out there for us. You know, but I'll just I'll just miss Goodison and the routine, as we all will with the routines that we have that we've built up over the years and some of us since they're the 60s. And that's going to be a real, real wrench, you know. And I don't know whether I, I, I'm going to like being... The ground will be great, but I don't want to... It's the environment there will not be the same. And I, I, I'm just imagining 
it's nice on a summer's afternoon, but I'm just imagining the winter with that wind, that icy blast <laughs> coming down the Mersey. I'm not looking forward to that at all, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but, yeah, hopefully the facilities are, are, are going to be second to none there. And, yeah, I'll look forward to that. Paul? I, I, feel, like you, I feel like you, Mike, my, my feelings are it's excitement tinged with regret. You know, I'm quite excited by the Cotswold New Stadium. You know, uh, like you, I'm getting fed up, sitting crunched up, and getting quite depressed by the lack of facilities pre-game and half-time. Yeah. You know, fight and try yeah. and get a drink in the queue. There's about sixty people and never seems to move. And uh, I, so I'm quite, you know, quite excited about having a, a decent vantage point, a brand new stadium, and, and we know if we want the club to you know, to get back to where it used to be, we need that new stadium to move us forward. But you mentioned before there, Mike, the lack of the routine is like a huge chunk of your life that you've been so used to doing for so many, so many match days over the years is going to be taken away. You know, the walk to go to some park. If you if you meet friends for drink, that goes well. You know, the routine of getting to the match, the post match routine, you know, meeting friends afterwards. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be heartbreaking to lose that kind of sense of history and contact. And uh, I remember reading when Atletico Madrid uh left left the Vincente Calderon and they had the scheme whereby you could come to the ground and buy your your chair from, from your stand and take it with you away to, to, to put in your house or put in your back garden. And, and yeah. I, you know, if Everson did that, I'd, I'd buy them. I'd, 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 buy, I'd buy our three seats and use them in the garden or use them somewhere because I, I'd like to have that bit. I'd like to have yeah. that bit of Goodison Park back with me in the house and i think that'll be if you did that that'd be a fantastic idea but yeah i mean in some ways you can't imagine life out goodison park but obviously we have to have we have to you know we have to enjoy life out goodison park that makes sense but yeah we'll miss it there's no there's no stage of like it in the uk there just isn't there isn't so quite right <laughs> not anymore not anymore exactly <laughs> Could you, um, when, when they have this auction, could you buy the pillar that blocks your view as well? <laughs> you can probably buy those on the eBay, Rob. <laughs> that was just going through my mind when you were talking about you know, the downside. And I'm thinking sometimes if I, I'm, I, I don't have a season t- 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 ticket now, but it, uh, but I, so quite often when I get, when I do get a, t- a t- ticket, there's a pillar in my way every time, is it, you know. Yeah, because once I've gone on sale, but it's, yeah, so, yeah, I, I won't miss that. Yeah. I mean, I just echo what you guys have said. Uh, to me, it's that sort of continuous thread in the family history, knowing that, you know, your dad, you know, people that you shared memories with, if you like. So that, that connection to the bricks and mortar of the place, and obviously you can't say that with you to the new stadium. And I, I do really wish that 30 years ago there'd been the vision and the money yeah. to start to do basically what Liverpool have done. And, and buy the land and and start to uh, help get the space to grow, um, but I accept now that you know that ship has sailed and you know we do have to move with, with all the with all the regrets it's tinged with. Um, I must say is that I've just now seen the new stadium actually rising up from the dock. You know it's sort of started to bring that tingle of anticipation. Um, you know it does look amazing, but as you say, it'd be interesting on a foggy night <laughs> on the road. Yeah, if, if you can imagine all those nights you've been at the pier head or maybe waiting for the ferry boat or whatever, you know, just go down the prom <laughs> in front. It's those nights, you know, that that's what you've got to bear in mind. These aren't going to be summer games, you know. <laughs> 
but yeah. <laughs> or I'm like I'm like what my mum used to say, I'm Nesh, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a big coat on. <laughs> How about you, Linda? Somebody doesn't sort of get over to Goodison from as much as you'd like due to the distance. I mean, what what are your thoughts? Are they on a similar theme? I, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the, the the when you don't go as often, you appreciate the times that you do that much more. Particularly when you've got in the back of your mind that it could possibly be the last time. I mean, it probably won't be. Um, hopefully, I'll be over in in, in next month or, or January. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it is like like nowhere else. Um, and I, I almost listening to all these stories it, I almost sort of live vicariously through the you know have those memories sort of coursing through my my veins even though I've never haven't experienced them and I, it's just it, it is the magic of the place and you can almost I mean you can almost feel the history in the place and that's that's just the one thing that you wish you could take with you but you just can't you know um, and, and the one thing that I, I suppose that I that, that I'll miss is, is those iconic shots of Eusebio and Pele you've got the Archibald Leach crisscross in the background. It's unmistakably Everton. And I, my concern about the new ground is it's going to look distinctive from the outside, but actually from the inside, those interior shots aren't necessarily, unless they add something later, some kind of distinctive element inside, there won't be anything that sort of immediately screams Everton yeah. in the way that those, yeah. you know, I, it makes you, the, the hairs stand, stand up on the back of your neck when you see pictures like that, because you just know, you know, all these, these sort of, Moments from history, even going back to Dixie Dean. I mean, it's, you know, it just it's there and it, and it's unmistakably Everton. So that's recognizable. Yeah, yeah. It's gonna it's going to be a wrench, but as as we've acknowledged, you have to move on, don't you? You do. Uh, one other point I'd make in talking to a couple of friends is there's almost a surreal element to Goodison that I don't think anywhere it gets. I mean, the, you know, whether it's people chaining themselves to the uh, the post and leading to sort of 10 minutes of added time <laughs> against Newcastle, or a sort of uh, German shepherd on being sort of carried aloft down to the road. Where else did you get that? You know? <laughs> can, you, can you imagine any other stadium? Yeah. It's just something yeah. unique about the place. It's almost like a, like say, surrealist experiment. Yeah. It's an amazing place. Yeah. Yeah, and you do hear, you do hear commentators referring to it frequently, as they they are appreciating themselves that it is where really the last the last one in the Premier League that that that, that sort of feels that way, yeah. um, you know, as a, as a proper old football ground. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always so impressed by the commentators when they do talk up when they do talk up the ground. Having just had to walk over the roof <laughs> to get down to where they're going to yeah. sit, because that is if you've seen any, you know that. What a hair-raising trip that is it before is. you get to where you're supposed to be working for the like, you know, walk. But now they put a staircase in, so the snowflakes, you know. But if, <laughs> if previously you'd be going down a, um, a a vertical ladder once you were in. But, uh, but nevertheless, you've still got to go over the roof, you know, which is astonishing. But, but it's, it's good. It's good they get they get the sense of history, and, and you're right. There's real feeling from the football commentators that we have to appreciate this stage of why it's still here. Because as I think we, you know, we would all say, sometimes at Goodison Park, the atmosphere that's created, and you saw that again last season, is unique. It can't be created in any other football ground. The passion, the closest to the action, the way the fans get behind the team, the whole experience, and you know. I, I would love Brownie Moore Dock to be able to re- to recreate that. I have my doubts that I can do that, but you know, live and hope. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, uh, here on the Toffee Web uh, Podcast, uh, we do a weekly question. So I thought, in the in the spirit of the uh, of the World Cup and internationals, um, I would pose the question to you, gentlemen. Uh, what is your either your best or your favorite internationals goal that's scored by an Everton player down the years? Who wants to go first? I'll, I'll go first. Uh, I'll go Wayne Rooney's first England goal away against Macedonia 2003 we've got a 17 year old kid who's playing for our club scoring for England it really doesn't get better than that well, I'll, I'll go I'll go next uh, that was on my list uh, Paul uh, but, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry, no, no, but I had a couple more up my sleeve um, it was Gary Lineker when he got the hat-trick uh, at uh, Mexico in 86 when, uh, when we needed him most but for me probably you know, there's not that many goals I can think of scored by Everton players in my sort of living, living memory. But no. what for spectacular, um, and by a sometimes maligned player when he was wearing the Royal Blue shirt was the one that James McFadden scored against France in 2007, yeah. about oh, 30 yards. Right. Yeah, 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 amazing yeah. goal, mm-hmm. and it just showed what Faddy could do on his day. Sadly. There weren't maybe enough days at Goodison, <laughs> but there was a player there, and that and that, that goal was spectacular. This isn't fair because I'm last, and I cut because I'd gone for the Rooney. Really <laughs> 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 I'll get me coat. <laughs> no, it, it, it's fine because mine would have been the Lineker hat trick uh, against against Poland because that was my that was my first World Cup. And so I have a sort of very strong emotional tie to that particular World Cup. Uh, yeah. I was sort of very much, I'd sort of, I sort of dived headlong into the game. I'd come over from South Africa where I'd played the game as a, as a, as a kid, but never really followed it. And sort of just jumping into the, yeah, at school, everyone's playing football, talking about football. And you just, it was a very quick introduction to it. Um, and then the World Cup starts and, you know, and, and within weeks I'm, I'm, cursing the name of Diego Maradona and putting his face <laughs> on the dartboard, yeah, you know, because yeah. it's, uh, yeah, so that, that particular World Cup, I think, uh, would, yeah, Gar- the Gary Lineker hat-trick. Uh, the, the only other one that, that came to mind, and unfortunately he was an Everton, wasn't an Everton player when he did it, but were Tim Cahill's volley in the 2014 yeah. uh, World yeah. Cup, which yeah. I, I wish he'd been an Everton player when he'd done that, but that, that would have taken it. I, I very much get Paul's point about the Rooney goal, because I remember him scoring that, I just felt the enormous one pride of a sort of this pr- prodigiously talented young Everton player scoring his first goal for his country and uh, just thinking there'd be many more to follow while he was at Everton but obviously sadly uh, events uh, proved otherwise but yeah no, it, was, uh, it was great to see that sort of homegrown talent announce himself in, in such a way I'm looking forward to Connor Cody scoring in the final Absolutely. of the World Cup <laughs> Although maybe Wolves will claim that. I don't know how it works. Yeah, good point. Uh, before we uh, before we wrap it up, uh, Rob, I know you wanted to say uh, a few words about some of the, um, the the Blues that unfortunately we've lost in the in the very recent past. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Well, it's, it's been been a dreadful week of losses in the sort of Everton family the past. Uh, sort of 10 days or so um we lost one of the sort of i think original members of the heritage society um a, a short while ago dr john rowlands um fantastic uh, esteemed man uh a, a general practitioner but in his spare time a, a great sports and local sort of local history expert um 
befriended and got to know Everton players from the 30s, interviewed them, wrote a couple of books, and and very importantly, or should have been very importantly, he sort of pioneered sort of campaigning into research as to the effects of heading the ball uh, in players of a certain age and the potential impacts in terms of dementia, uh, Alzheimer's. You know, he was a pioneer in raising awareness of that. So it was a, it was a sad loss when uh, John passed away at 83 recently. I think uh, my colleagues on the call would have known John and, and sort of share share some opinion of what a great uh, and knowledgeable gentleman he was. Don't know if you got anything to add on uh, John, gents. Well, I didn't know John particularly well because by the time when I joined the society, which is about six six years ago, John was becoming a little more unwell, and his attendance, you know, wasn't as high as it as it was. But whenever he was there, he was he was always a fascinating guy to uh, to listen to. You know, he always had a story story to tell, and his he had a great collection, a, a great archive, which I think in. I heard David Prentice t- saying in recent times he'd been calling around to his house on a regular basis and uh, dropping off uh, material. You know, you know, the he didn't want it to uh, to uh, to go go to waste. You know, so yeah, he had he had a great deal about him. You know, that I think we're uh, we're going to lose. You know, so and then we sort of lost three three former players as well in the past uh, week or so. Um, I knew Mick Megan, who was a league championship winner uh, with Everton in the 63 team. So the team that you two, Paul and Mike, you'd have seen just when you were starting out on the on this path. Um, fantastic guy. Um, he was kind of an unsung hero from that, that side, wasn't he? he was a, there were great stars in that team and yeah. Mick got less less coverage, I think, than most of them. But he, he did a great job. You know, he's a solid player, but he, was, he didn't, he didn't uh, have the press that likes of Alex Young or Tony Kay did, you know. But it's the sort of player that you need at a club, isn't it? You need, he's one of those players who does the job, no fuss, and is mm-hmm. always there. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then Neil Robinson, uh, shocked to lose him just uh, a few days ago, only 65. Um, I think Neil only played 23 games, uh, but he grew, he was born on Spillow, Spillow Lane around the corner from the ground. Uh, his dad worked in the Winslow Um and you know, from an amazing blue family, and also a pioneer of, of sort of veganism, the only the first vegan professional footballer in in the UK. So, and a, and a fantastic guy. And I think uh, you know he joined us at uh, an event that the Heritage Society did at the Winslow just before lockdown started, and it was great to have him and the family sort of visiting the pub that their dad worked in uh, all those years ago. Yeah, that came as a real, that that was a real shock to to me because. Especially with someone of your own age, but I I, I knew Neil and I, I was at school with his brother John, uh, and and Ken was there, you know, Sir Sir Ken. He he was a few years older than us, but I can remember him. I remember Ken when he was there, but and then but he was in the sixth form, I think, and you know when we 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 were lower down, but the, but I I can rem, I can remember John playing football really well at school. Who was a bit of a Valderrama? He used to boss them the midfield. He had the the bushy red hair, and Neil would always tag, tag along. You know, he 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 was he was the younger brother, and so we never rated Neil. He, he, he was a good player, but he was net, net, John was the better player, you see. And then they 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 went off for trials, and they they took Neil, not John, and we couldn't believe it. You, you, John's the guy, you know, but 
Neil proved otherwise, and he was a he was a great fullback, you know, and it, and and so so I I felt that even more, you know, because because knowing them, but both still good friends with with John now, many years after school, you know, um, it's just, it was just a shock because as you said about his veganism and his uh, he was so fit, you know, I I put weight on him, uh, you know, as as I'm getting older, but Neil was still ultra fit, and for him to uh, uh, to pass in that way was. So, such a shock, you know. Um, yeah, that was that, that. That that was a hard one. That I, I've heard a story. I don't know how true it is. Maybe Mike or Bob can correct me on this. But apparently, at one stage, Neil was getting quite frustrated by his inability to break through into the first team. So he went to see Gordon Lee to ask, "Well, you know, how come you, you you're picking De- uh, Terry Darakon instead of me for most games?" To which Gordon Lee allegedly replied. Teddy Danikot scares people. You don't. That's why he's playing. <laughs> it's probably true. It's probably true, actually. Yeah. He was such a nice guy, Neil. Yeah, he was a lovely lo- 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 lad, Neil. You know, and I can imagine him saying, yeah. "You know, do you mind if I go past you here with this ball?" You know, he's he was that type of guy. You know, <laughs> no, he was a he was a, lo- a, a, a lovely man. You know, and uh, yeah, he was such, such a loss, you know. But well, he went to the states afterwards, and uh, John went with him um, as well, incidentally, and and he played o- o- over there, uh, there for for a time. So um, his career, you know, that took another path after he played for uh, Swansea, and uh, yeah. Just just one, without labouring on uh, about Neil, I read there was a very good article about John Joe Kenny on on the Athletic uh, website. Uh, where John Joe was talking about how he he never felt he achieved what he should have done as a player, how he played within himself because of the pressure of it being his own club, maybe the expectation of the fans, and he, he would restrict him. And and John, his brother his brother John read the article and said that could have been Neil saying that same position, local lads, and that yeah. same pressure that you you never achieve what you should have done because of it. Well, at the same time that I. That... I knew Dave Jones um, as well. We we went to the school opposite my house. We, we were all the, we we were all the same age, you see. And there was a few lads. As Barry Wellings was another one. Ray Deakin went went to the, to the same school. And these were lads who were in the youth side, or just coming through. And we used to we used to play with them on the backfield. I was Pat Duick. He was Dave Jones, you know. Um, and, <laughs> and and so so we we knew these guys and the pressure on them at that at that stage. Were I mean we would give them stick as as well just as as, as mates you know you're not good enough to to play for for the Blues you know we were excited for them but because it's your own club you don't you don't think that the same level um, as other players and we still see that now that it's awful uh, the treatment that players like that get like Tommy Dick Davis and you know they don't give a, they don't get a chance to really show what they can do you know to that's a downside of the fan, fan base I think. The last person that we uh, lost recently, of course, was Dave Johnson, and he was uh, again only only seventy one when he when he lost his battle with cancer. Um, I saw very little, if any, of Dave because um, really he was just about packing up at Goodison the second time round when I was going regularly. But gents, I suppose he's one of those players you saw at both ends of his career in a blue shirt. Yeah, I mean, 
I mean, certainly the first incarnation of David Johnson was was miles better than the second incarnation you touched upon there, Bob. But I think there's kind of parallels with David Johnson and Wayne Rooney because he came through as a Liverpool lad, a forward. He, he, he scored in all this major case, the first FA Cup game, first European game. He looked a really, really bright prospect. He seemed to be carrying the hopes of a new Everson on his shoulders. And I would argue that Similar to the sale of Alan Ball, the sale of David Johnson to Ipswich kind of indicated that we were no longer going to have this bright future. Yeah. We were going, we thought we, we deserved because he was such an exciting prospect. And at that time as well, you know, to leave Everson for Ipswich who in the early seventies were nothing like the team they'd become by by, by the late seventies. So it was <clears throat> it was a real shock to lose a player of that caliber who was so young, who had come through the ranks, who had and the boundless ability who looked at the real prospect of the future and having taken away like that and to be replaced by Rod Belfast is still arguably the worst bit of transfer business, certainly Harry Cashew did. And then to rub our noses in it, he comes back and plays for Liverpool to great success. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It just makes it yeah. when, he, when he came back, my memory of him was we, we were going to um, Rotterdam for the, uh, for the final. And but we were we were getting an overnight coach, but we'd all met it in town um, by five o'clock. We we're going to get uh, a few drinks, a, a bite to eat uh, uh, before we went. And we were in the streets. I don't remember streets down the side where the Kirklands was. That was the place to be at the time. And so we were in there. We were only I think we were only only ones in there. It was very quiet at that 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 time of night. And so we're all enjoying ourselves. There's about eight and nine of us, all in the colours. And he walked in, and he saw us immediately. And he he, he came over. We were all giving him stick because he was still a red M at that, that at that stage. But he came over and he sat with us. He was there. He was he was there for about half an hour. He still wanted that that atmosphere and knowing we were going over there. And he wants to talk talk about it. It was a he was a nice guy, you know. Yeah. So I always remember that about him. Uh, he had the, he he gave us there uh, the time of day, you know. A nice guy. Uh, Rob, Paul, Mike, uh, it's been absolutely brilliant having you on. Um, it, it's 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 really you can take it for granted the fact that we have you know all these people who are able to recount memories of of something as special as the World Cup at Goodison Park, uh, and our club just doing such such um, such justice to that occasion and, and that year's tournament. So once again, thank you so much for uh, coming on. Don't forget that you can visit the Everton FC Heritage Society website at efcheritagesociety.com where there is a wealth of articles and information about the club and its illustrious past, not to mention the fabulous work that the society itself does to preserve that history for future generations of Blues. And if you haven't ever done so, make sure to drop in upstairs at St. Luke's Church before every home game where the society features historical exhibits, rare memorabilia and sales of old match programs and the like, and you can even rub elbows with society members. Uh, I will be back with the rest of the Toffee Web podcast crew next week, I think. But until then, uh, if you're watching the World Cup, continue to enjoy the World Cup. And um, yeah, keep Everton, the modern-day Everton, as far to the back of your mind as you can. And uh, we'll uh, catch up with you then. Until then, take care. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 